All right, welcome to Ghost Town. Creepy Steve here. Oh, it's good to see you again, because I can see you. <laughs> I'm your big bro, Creepy Steve. Creeping along the airwaves. Hope you're having a wonderful day. I'm feeling pretty good. I treated Saturday like a Saturday, but you know what? I drank my agua. And that's what you got to keep in mind, kids. It'll, it just might save your life. Being proactive is so much easier often than being reactive. All it does is take a little thought. So give it some time and consideration and some value. And uh, yeah, you'll keep it balanced. That's at least part of what you can do to keep your life together. I've got other suggestions. We'll, uh, I'll save those for the, the other breaks. Can't give it all to you at once. I got to keep you hooked, you know, keep you on the line. I got some lingerers in Ghost Town today. Lingerers. But that's okay. They're my friends. Topperheadin', Paul Simonon, Mick Jones, Joe Strummer, The Clash. Still lingering in Ghost Town. Too much stuff to crank out in one show. But if you were here last week, I hope you enjoyed it. We got through the first record. We got through the second record. Give him enough rope. And uh, also London Calling. And then a slew of singles in there, too. Non-album, EPs. Good stuff. They got all kinds of good stuff. Good stuff, good stuff. Speaking of singles, I'm going to start off with a couple of 1979 singles. And then I'm going to get right into uh, Sandinista. But first, you're going to hear an interview about the Roxy Club in 77. Let's keep it tuned to WRFN LP Pasquo. You're listening to Radio Free Nashville and Ghost Town. The Clash for you for two hours. Hang in there. Happy you're here. This was the first club for punk groups and their followers. We agreed to kick it off on, I think it was New Year's, New Year's Day. a good place to hang out and there was also a, a, a punk rasta interface because um, the DJ at the time was Don Letts he would play a lot of reggae records that we hadn't had any chance to come across that gave us a lot of new information that rasta punk crossover was like really crucial so the whole scene it would have been piffle without that really because it yeah it was something else
people won't get no justice tonight. Remember to kick it off. No one will guide you along
Pressure Drop. That's The Clash from 1979, a non-album single. And also you heard Armageddon Time from the same year. Uh, these are uh, these were recorded around the, the London Calling time period. And, um, you know, they were touring at this time the States and also the UK. Um, you can hear the reggae influence that they uh, definitely had. And they were, were uh, you know, putting into their music at this time period. Uh, but their touring in America really opened up their eyes to other uh, musical avenues like soul, R&B, and definitely hip-hop. Uh, as we get into uh, the next record, you're defi- definitely going to take notice of that. Uh, I got one more single, though, for you from 1980. Here's Bank Robber. You're listening to The Clash in Ghost Town.
But the great thing about San Anista was we'd done a really long tour in Britain and in the US. And then we came straight off that tour and rather than like falling down exhausted and like jetting off to opposite ends of the world or something, we were so up for it that we went straight into a studio and Columbia didn't even want to buy us any time. And there we were in New York off the tour and all we wanted to do was record. And we had to force them to, to spill out for three weeks at Electric Lady. of the songs actually being written as they're going down. And we had Mikey Dre with us on hand, and we called in uh, Mickey Gallagher and Norman Watroy from the Blockheads for a bit of musicianship. And we had Ivan Julian drop in, and New York guys, and we had a real scene. I mean, it, musicians were dropping in from all over New York, and we were in there day and night. I never went to a bar or a nightclub or anything. We were in there day and night. They used to sleep under the piano, and we couldn't get us out of the studio if you tried. They had to pry us out of there. Okay, uh, we're back again. In, of course, you're listening to WBAI in New York, and this program is Labrish. My name is Hafter Selassie, and we're speaking with Baba, or maybe Ras Baba. Can I give a message? Hello? Go ahead, man. Yeah, I'd just like to say, um, let's have some music now, huh? Okay, okay. <laughs> Thank you. You're
Studio albums by The Clash. This is the fourth one, Sandinista, released on December 12th in 1980 as a triple album containing 36 tracks with six songs on each side. And uh, for the first time, the band's traditional songwriting credits of uh, Strummer and Jones were replaced by a generic credit to The Clash. Uh, and the band also cut the album royalties in order to release the three LP at a, uh, at a low price. 
they got it down to the, to the price of a single LP, which was always their goal. Um, that was the case with London Calling also, which ended up being a double. Uh, the title refers to the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. It was voted the best album of the year in the pop and jazz um, critics poll in the Village Voice. Uh, also ranked number 404 on the Rolling Stone list of 500 greatest albums of all time. Uh, the, the list that was released in uh, 2003, that is. We're going to keep it going. Uh, let's see. What did you hear? What did you hear? What did you hear? What was it? Lightning Strikes, also the leader, both off Sandinista. And before that, Bank Robber, the 1980 single. And uh, we got a little interview clip right here. I'm going to continue on with Sandinista and The Clash. You're right in Ghost Town. A spliff bunker was something that I realized was a great thing because you can't have a load of idiots partying in the control room because the engineer can't hear and no decisions can be made. And so I was keen to hang with people because otherwise you're in an isolated bubble. But it has to be done carefully because you cannot have people pouring wine into the mixing desk or behavior like that. It's just not going to happen. And so I invented the spliff bunker, which was like a, a place where you could like smoke weed and hang out and talk out in the main body of the studio, as far removed geographically as possible from the control room so that in the control room, sanity could reign and people could EQ things and get things recorded correctly. And the spliff bunker was a place where you could come up with your next, while they're fiddling with the last thing, the spliff bunker was where we'd come up with the next thing we were gonna, and as soon as they got a rough mix down, we'd be like, fresh tape on the reel, let's get the mics out, because we're gonna go like this and this and this, and we'd just keep doing that day and night. And that's why it had to be a triple album.
One day we were sitting in the split bunker and um, Ian Jury and the Blockheads had just been on top of the pops, uh, all dressed as policemen, and they decided to pay us a visit afterwards. And so they all burst into the studio, and you couldn't see at first, and it just looked like a blow. We were being raided. It was the police, and they all ran down the stairs dressed in a. <laughs> yeah, it's like hold on a minute. That bloke looks like Wilco. <laughs>
Call up. That's the Clash off their fourth LP, Sandinista. Also in there, Police on My Back and Up in Heaven from the same record. And uh, this album was recorded in uh, 
over most of the year of 1980 um, in different locations, including London, Manchester, Jamaica, and most notably New York. Uh, you know, it was produced by the band, which essentially meant Mick Jones and Joe Strummer. Uh, they had a lot of guests in on, on this one. Um, you'll hear that through some of the, uh, the interview footage. I'll skip the name calling uh, directly here. Uh, this was a triple LP set and uh, was the subject of trickery towards the record company uh, from the band. They were able to squeeze out two LPs and then they told the uh, record label CBS that they wanted to, uh, to include a third disc, which would only have a 12-inch single on it. And uh, they went ahead and just <laughs> made a full other LP out of it and uh, recorded it, pressed it before the uh, record company became wise. Um, also... Uh, the other uh, end of that rumor is that The Clash surrendered their royalties for the first 200,000 pressings of the Triple LP to make it happen. Um, and he, actually, Joe, Joe Strummer and uh, some of the other guys in the band have been quoted on uh, acknowledging that surrendering of their royalties. So that might be true. Uh, the song Washington Bullets was uh, lyricist Joe Strummer's most extensive and most specific political statement to date. Um, in it, he name-checks conflicts and uh, controversies from around the world, namely in Chile, Nicaragua, Cuba, Afghanistan, and Tibet. Uh, in reference to the first three, Strummer seems to side with what he sees as a popular leftist uh, movements or governments, and uh, while in the latter two, he sharply criticizes the policy of Moscow's and uh, Beijing's communist governments for what he sees as uh, imperialist actions. And the original Rolling Stone review of Sandinista calls Washington bullets the heart of the album. You're listening to Ghost Town. It's The Clash. Oh, mama, mama, look there. You children are playing in the street again. Don't you know what happened down there? A youth of 14 got shot down there. The cocaine guns are jammed downtown. The killing clowns are blood money men. Shooting for Washington bullets again. Cause every cell in Chile will of the tortured men Remember Allende in the days before Before the army came Please remember Victor Jara In the Santiago Stadium Everybody Those Washington bullets again And in the Bay of Pigs in 1961 A banner for the playboy in the Cuban sun For Castro is the color is a red and red those Washington bullets want Castro dead The Castro is a club The bullet is a spray of lead
Sandinista was a three, three pieces of long playing vinyl for the price of one. We took a knock on it. In order to bring it out at the price we wanted, we forwent our royalties on that single so the company would release it. I mean, on that whole album. And many times I've had debates with people about what should be on it, what shouldn't be on it. But now, looking back on it, I can't separate. It's like the leaves of an onion. There's some stupid tracks. There's some brilliant tracks. But the more I think about it, the more happy I am that it is as it is. I think it, it, it's, it's where we were all at one way or the other at that time. You could cut it down if you wanted, but you'd miss, it'd be missing the point somewhat, yeah. I think. I can only say I'm proud of it. Warts and all, as they say. It's a magnificent thing. And I, I wouldn't change it, even if I could.
Charlie Don't Surf, The Clash, off of Sandinista. You also heard Washington Bullets in there. Uh, in a review for Rolling Stone, John Piccarella headlined, The Clash dropped the big one. He argued that, in effect, the band said, to hell with The Clash style, there's a world out there. Some critics have argued that the album would have worked better as a less ambitious, smaller project. While Piccarella... And others think of the album as a breakthrough that deserves comparison to the Beatles' White Album. Uh, Robert Crisco wrote in the Village Voice, If this is their worst, which it is, I think, they must be, er, the band's greatest rock and roll band. Good enough. I don't think it's their worst. It's pretty awesome. Uh, I think the one <laughs> that they tried to release after uh, Mick and Topper left might be arguably the worst. So let's focus more on that if we're going to be negative. Um, gonna keep it going. Actually, uh, I'm off of uh, Sandinista at this point. I hope I hope you enjoy my little dip into that fourth LP by The Clash. Uh, what do I got for you next? Yes, yeah, so a little interview clip, and uh, we're gonna get right into it. A popular 1981 single that uh, made the R&B charts in the U.S. How about that? All right, you're listening to WRFN LP Pasquo. I'm Creepy Steve. You're right in the middle of Ghost Town with The Clash visiting. Mick Jones is the one who's, again, he's the king arranger and he's bringing in the, he was always looking to do the new thing and that was really banging off in New York. Rap was there, it was like 1980. Rap was like going off big time, coming out of Curtis Blow, Sugar Hill and all this. And WBLS was like blasting all over the city and we just like hooked on to some of that vibe and made our own version of it. and. We made an instrumental mix of, of Mag 7. It was just by luck, and the fact that it started playing in New York, all over New York that summer, it was a big success. Take one out, do y'all find 
Newman Cops kicking gypsies on the pavement Now the news has left to attention Noon the landing of the dentist convention Italian monster shoots a lobster Two fingers don't get out of hand Car in the fridge, a fridge in the car A cowboy's do TV land
can we get that world to listen? This is Rachel Cross using our own ammunition. This is Rachel Cross, can we get that world to listen? This is Rachel Cross on Pirate Satellites. Haunting in your living room, cashing in the middle of rights. This is Rachel Cross on Pirate Satellites. This is Radio Clash by The Clash, the 1981 single, non-album style. And before that, you heard The Magnificent Seven, the 12-inch single from 1981 that did break the U.S. R&B chart. So, so cool. Uh, I got to mention that that track uh, is on the album Sandinista, although it's a different mix. I'm partial to the single. I'm going to move right along to the fifth studio album by The Clash, Combat Rock, released on May 14th, 1982, also on CBS Records. Once again, through all the shenanigans, still on CBS. That's because you can't deny sales when you're a record label exec, no matter the shenanigans. In the UK, this album charted at number two, spending 23 weeks, and also peaked at number seven in the US, spending 61 weeks on that chart. This is by far the group's best-selling album, being certified double platinum in the United States. Pleasure to have this one on Ghost Town today. The Clash, Combat Rock, Know Your Rights. WRFN LP, Pasquo. This is a public service announcement with guitar.
We went back into West London, we were rehearsing and building up material which was going to become combat rock. Which again, we came back to New York and, and cut uh, Electric Lady again. But by this time we were getting very tired because all this has gone down in the space of what, four years. We're in like the fifth year and all this has happened. We've released like hours and hours worth of, um, of long playing material at a rate that um, doesn't bear thinking about in this day and age. And it had to have a toll on us. And I think we should have had like maybe a year off, but we didn't think in terms like that then. That would have recharged, the band would still be alive today, perhaps. I think if we'd have taken a year off, we wouldn't have been in the clash. <coughs> Groups nowadays take a year off and get their heads together in the country. You know, we just start proven therapy. Well, we didn't, um, that wasn't what it was like in those days. You know, I mean, now they would do that and try and save the group, but it wasn't a case of that. It was like, just get, get on with it.
Car Jamming. That's The Clash off of Combat Rock. Also, Know Your, know your Rights. I'm going to keep it going. You're uh, hanging with The Clash in Ghost Town. Should I stay or should I go? I think you should stay. I think you should stay. To let me know Should I stay or should I go If you say that you are mine I'll be here till the end of time So you got to let me know Should I stay or should I go It's always taste, taste, taste you're happy when I'm on my knees One day is fine, the next is black So if you want me off your back Well come on and let me know Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? Decisions bugging me. If you don't want me, set me free. Exactly whom I'm supposed to be. Don't you know which clothes even fit me? Come on and let me know. Should I cool it or should I blow? tired of the road, tired of the studio, we were burned out. We tried to mix it as we were going along on that Far Eastern tour and we put studios in Australia and that's when we really ground to a halt. All I remember really is just having this two-hour argument with Mick about the level of the bass on Know Your Rights. When you're struggling it holds you together because you're, you're heading for some point, we're gonna make it, come on boys, hang in there. <laughs> and then Rock the Casbah went top five. 
Casbah, that's The Clash from Combat Rock. You also heard Should I Stay or Should I Go, the two mega hits from the LP. Uh, following Sandinista, singer-guitarist Joe Strummer felt the group was drifting creatively. And bassist Paul Simonon agreed with this. And, uh, you know, they felt uh, the professionalism was lacking on their then-managers, Black Hill Enterprises. Uh, Strummer and Simonon convinced their bandmates to reinstate the band's original manager, Bernard Rhodes, in February of 1981. Uh, this was an attempt to restore the chaos and anarchic energy of The Clash's early days. Uh, and this decision was not welcomed by guitarist Mick Jones, who was in fact becoming progressively estranged from his bandmates at that time. Also, uh, drummer Topper Hedden escalated his intake of heroin and cocaine. His once occasional drug usage had now become a habit that was costing him 100 pounds per day and undermining his health. Um, 
What else before we move on? Oh, another note of interest. After finishing the New York recording sessions in uh, December of 1981, the band returned to London for most of 82, um, well, most of January of 1982, and uh, between January and March, The Clash embarked on a six-week tour of Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, and Thailand. And it was during this tour, the album's cover photograph was shot by Penny Smith in Thailand in March of 1982. That's the band on the tracks, with Strummer covering up the one side of his face iconic moving right along red angel dragnet paul simonon on vocals you're listening to ghost town Shot that cop that come 
in America and this is unheard of for us our placings have been like 198 below that and suddenly it just all blew up
Tan, that's The Clash. Still combat rock, also overpowered by funk, and you heard Red Angel Dragnet off the LP, the fourth LP, by rock band The Clash. Uh, following their Far East tour, the band returned to London in March of 1982 to listen to the music they'd recorded in New York three months earlier. 
Uh, they recorded 18 songs, enough material to possibly release another double LP. Well, the last one was a triple, but you know what I mean. More than one. Um, and they debated among themselves how many songs their new album should contain and how long the song's mixes should be. Mick, jo- Mick Jones argued in favor of a double album with lengthier, dancier mixes, and the other guys wanted a single album with shorter song mixes. And this internal wrangling created tension within the band, particularly with Jones, who had mixed the first version. He was a little butthurt. It happens. Um, and then manager Bernie Rhodes suggested that producer Glenn Johns get in on the remix of the album. And uh, this took place in John's Garden Studio in Warnford, Hampshire. And uh, um, he was accompanied by Strummer and Jones in editing Combat, Combat Rock down from a 77-minute double album down to a 46-minute single LP. And they achieved this by trimming the length of individual songs, such as by removing instrumental intros and codas from songs like Rock the Casbah, over, Overpowered by Funk. And uh, they also omitted several songs entirely. Yep, they wanted the single LP to go out on. I don't know if they knew they were going out at that point, but uh, yeah, this was the beginning of the end. Uh, but I'm going to keep it going, not to get too sad, boo-hoo, but we're going to move right into uh, a short interview here, and then a song you'll hear, uh, some spoken poetry by Allen Ginsberg. You're listening to The Clash right in Ghost Town. Today, when people hear it, they go, they ask me, oh, is this a new remix? Who remixed that? And I say, no, it's... That's it, 1982 or, or 1980, some of it. And like, we didn't realize we were doing something big by putting those things together. But that's the, if you realize what you're doing, it's probably old, I've come to think. It's when you don't realize what you're really doing that you do new original things. Because it's not something that the human mind can pre plan or the, if you can get your mind out of the way, you can do it. It seems to me like origination is perhaps instinct, not intellect. I don't think you should ever know where you're going. If you want to do something new, you shouldn't really have a master plan because you're never going to get there or you're going to foul up on the way. Starved in Metropolis. Hooked on Necropolis. Addict of Metropolis. Do the worm on Necropolis. Slam dance Cosmopolis. Enlighten the populace. Kitty. 
iron serenity. Get those defenders, it is error in pity. Not tear gas, no baton jar, that's not to take in the city. Strung out committee. Wall out of the city, club down from uptown. Spray pest from the nest, run out to Barrio Town. The gods are itchy. Forced to watch out the feast. Broken bottles. Exchange for birthright. Drafted in a jiffy. Ghetto defender. It is error in pity. Strung out committee. Not till gas, no button job. We'll stop you thinking in the city. Not sitting pretty. Of Ghana poets was bounced out of the room. Ramble. By the bodyguards of greed for disturbing the tomb. His words like flamethrowers. Paris commune. But the ghettos in their chest. His face painted whiter than he was led to rest. Died in Marseille. Ghetto defender. Buried in Charlie. It is peril in pity. Not to gas, no baton jaws. Start to take in the city. Shut up, It is peril in pity. Not to gas, no baton jaws. Start to take in the city. Guatemala, Honduras, Poland, a hundred years war. TV rerun invasion, Death Squad Salvador, Afghanistan meditation, old Chinese flu, kick junk, what else? Can a poor worker do? was really 100% in all, always working on ideas for the group there was he wouldn't he wouldn't share with the rest of us and so there was always that we didn't know what was going on Bernie said to me look we're starting a tour the tickets in Scotland they're not selling that well and he didn't understand the nature of the beasts of the clashes that we have what's called a walk-up yeah and we have a right big walk-up and anybody especially Bernie should have known that and he said well you better disappear or something or I need an excuse to cancel the tour, and like a fool, I went, all right. Joe did do that, but then obviously couldn't stand it and actually vanished from everybody. I should never have listened to that. that you have to have some regrets. Then the next thing that happened was that uh, Topper left. I remember when, when the band sacked me, I promised them that I'd stop, you know, misbehaving and taking substances. 
you need to have everybody firing on all cylinders if you're going to take things to new levels or new directions. And I feel a lot of guilt about that, you know, because if I'd have kept my act together, I could, could, could see the band, you know, possibly still being together today in a way. You can't have any passengers on board because it slows the whole thing down and you slow it down, you lose spirit and you grind to a shuddering halt. Inoculated City, that's The Clash from Combat Rock. Before that, you heard Ghetto Defendant, spoken word poetry incorporated, uh, courtesy of Allen Ginsberg. Topper Head and the drummer asked to leave the band just before Combat Rock's release due to his increasing drug use, diminishing health. Uh, original drummer Terry, Ta- <laughs> Terry Chimes was brought back to drum for the next few months. And the band opened for The Who on a leg of their final tour of the U.S., including a uh, super famous show at New York Shea Stadium. Lots of footage online from that. Also, uh, you can pick up uh, live tracks on compilations uh, from that show as well. Um, And though The Clash continued to tour, uh, tension continued to increase. And uh, in early 1983, Chimes left the band after the Combat Rock tour because of fighting and turmoil. And uh, he was replaced by Pete Howard for the U.S. Festival in San Bernardino, California which The Clash co-headlined along with David Bowie and Van Halen. 
Uh, the band argued with the event's promoters over inflated ticket prices and threatened to pull out unless a large donation was made to local charity. The group ultimately performed on May 28th, the festival's new day, new music day, and it drew a crowd of 140,000. Uh, after the show, members of the band brawled with security staff, and this was uh, Mick Jones' last appearance with the group. In September of 1983, he was fired. Me and Joe had been talking about it, and we got to the point where we said, you know, we're grown men. I can't take any more of this. We lost communication with each other. Even though we were in the same room, we were sort of looking at the floor. Joe said, Mick, we want you to leave. And then Mick said to me, um, what do you say? And I said, well, yeah. You know. Mick was intolerable to work with by this time. I mean, no fun at all. It wouldn't show up. When he did show up, it was like Elizabeth Taylor in a filthy mood. And he, he didn't want to go on tour, which was like the perfect time to go on tour when everything was moving up. I would say one of Mick's talents was not punctuality. You know, he, was, he was fairly late most of the time. But then, you know, talent's worth waiting for, I think, when all's said and done. But I was just carried away, really, and, you know, I wish I'd had a bit more control and, you know, you wish you knew what you knew now. It only happens like that in hindsight. It never happens like that when it's actually going on, because things are moving so fast, you don't have, you don't have the time to step back and take a view. And that's probably explained some of the kind of moments when you didn't have the, as much control on yourself. Papa, 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 Papa,
best number of their whole catalog such a good one straight to hell off of combat rock and uh yeah that's that's about that about wraps it up for the clash i'm a little i'm a little sad you know listening to all these interviews and uh doing this chronologically it really puts it into perspective um but uh when you're on top of the world you know it can only last so long look at the roman empire um after uh head and end uh Jones left the band. Um, Simonon and and, and uh, Joe Strummer did cut another album called "Cut the Crap," 
mostly played by studio musicians. Um, this was a struggle and uh, was released to critical, less than satisfactory critical reviews, let's put it that way. They were struggling with their manager, Bernard Rhodes, and uh, just it just fell apart from there. Um, after the breakup, Strummer did contact Jones in an effort to reform The Clash. Uh, Jones, however, had already formed a new, a new band, Big Audio Dynamite, and they released a debut late in 85. Uh, the two did work together, however, on their respective 1986 projects. Uh, Jones helped out the two songs Strummer wrote and performed for the Sid and Nancy uh, movie soundtrack, and Strummer, in turn, co-wrote a number of the tracks on the second uh, Big Audio Dynamite album. Um, and, uh, yeah, Seminon went on to... Uh, um, when I went on with another band and uh, um, Topper released a solo album, but then uh, spiraled into more drug abuse. It kind of gets a little sad from there, but uh, you know, they were on top, they served their purpose and there's a legacy involved here. Um, I've got a few, uh, a couple of more tracks uh, from the live album. It's a compilation from here to eternity. Make sure you stay tuned for RFN weekend with Matt, the PM. I'm Creepy Steve. I'll be here with you for a few more, and then uh, we're going to turn it over to that, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining me today in Ghost Town with our special visitors, The Clash. It's been a fun one. Live at Shea Stadium, 1982, Career Opportunities. How about that for irony? One more for here, yeah. White, white, one more here for you, White Man and Hammersmith Palais. This is Creepy Steve. Join me next week. I'll be here. Hammersmith. One, two, one, two, three, four.